Thank you for choosing to listen to this episode today. Before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that recently, Talks Talk changed its name to Talks Now. So during this episode, at multiple points, you'll hear us refer to Talks Talk and the website Talks Talk. But you can check out all that great content at Talks Now T O X N O W dot O R G and follow us at our Twitter feed at Talks Now. So same great people, same great content, just a slightly different name. Thanks for listening. We'll continue with the episode now. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Talks Talk, the toxicology podcast from the University of Massachusetts Division of Toxicology in Worcester, Massachusetts. I'm Matt Zuckerman, fellow at the UMass Division of Toxicology. Thanks for joining me again. Uh, this is promises to be an exciting episode. Uh, on this episode, I'm going to have a talk with Chuck McKay, one of the toxicologists at the Connecticut Poison Control Center, and we're going to be talking about arsenic in your apple juice, which is something that either you've heard a lot about or nothing about, but either way, you'll probably hear something about it uh, just because uh, the words arsenic and apple juice tend to scare a lot of people, a lot of parents, and result in uh, calls to the Poison Control Center and visits to the emergency department. It's also, um, I think, it's a little bit, uh, possibly a little bit dry in terms of um, emergency medicine, but brings up some really important points that we haven't had a chance to cover when looking into environmental toxicology and uh, sort of sources of poisoning and toxic substances in foods and sort of the regulations that go along with that, the thinking behind it, the reasoning behind uh, some of those regulations. So that when your aunt, sister, you know, uh, cousin, when they ask you about arsenic and apple juice, uh, you can give sort of a reasoned response. But uh, before we do that, uh, we're going to have a Tox Pearl. Um, I'm actually presenting our Tox Pearl, so I'll be introducing my myself. And that Tox Pearl is something that I think is going to be helpful to you practicing in the emergency department and relates to a case I've seen recently. I want to thank those of you who have been listening. Um, I got some feedback on our last episode. I know that the best of articles, uh, some people really enjoyed the articles. Some people found some of the discussion on opiates a little bit uh, rambling in the middle. I think whenever you get an emergency physician talking about prescription of opioids, they tend to, or we tend to uh, be so impassioned that we, we all have our opinions and so I'll try and watch that more in the future. I think that's yet another good reason, though, to consider attending the uh, spring uh, conference in San Diego, which is just next week. Still time to sign up and attend. Uh, additionally, the pre-symposia for that conference will be about opioid abuse and opioid prescribing and is uh, directly relevant for most emergency physicians and toxicologists. Um, also, the shirts are up and uh, are uh, for sale. And uh, so if you want to get your Tox Talk shirt, just uh, head over to our website at toxtalk.org. That's toxtalk.org, where you can get a link to uh, the Tox Talk store just in time to attend the conference in San Diego. First up, a special request from Stephanie. So this is Stephanie Weiss, the intern member of Tox Talk again. And we would like to start a new segment, but I need some help from the medical student and resident listeners. What we would like to do is turn this whole pimping the intern thing on its head and have a new Stump the Toxicologist segment. What I would like to ask you to do is send me your questions that we, and we will, on the next edition, try to 
stump, stump Ed Boyer. Please send questions that we can use to stump Ed to stephanie at talkstalk.org. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E at T-O-X-T-A-L-K dot org. And Ed will not know what the question is going to be ahead of time. I will pick a question and read it to him, and he'll hear it for the first time on the podcast. And we will see if we can stump the toxicologist. And uh, our tox pearl. So this is a tox pearl uh, that I wanted to uh, send out to people. And hopefully it'll make my job easier uh, as a toxicologist. Very often I get called uh, about patients that have overdosed on anticholinergic agents. Uh, diphenhydramine Benadryl seems to be one of the most common. And uh, typically these patients will come in and they look anticholinergic. They're tachycardic, they're dry, they're red, they're uh, myadriatic, and, and very agitated. And uh, the typical treatment for these patients is very often benzos and fluids. Um, and uh, in excess quantities, diphenhydramine can start to behave like a TCA, and so you can get widening of the QRS, so you always want to watch for that in a really bad Benadryl overdose. But in lower doses, you typically see um, a very typical anticholinergic toxidrome. Now, because of the duration of effect and because of how large a quantity some people take, you can, you can buy you know, a 500-tablet container of Benadryl. Because of that, very often people are sort of out of it for you know, a whole day or more or less, and so need admission to um, an ICU setting uh, to be observed and treated for altered mental status. And the antidote for anticholinergic poisoning, which I think most most medical students know, is physostigmine. And physostigmine, just to review real quickly, uh, is a acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. So what it does is it enters the synapse and it interferes with acetylcholinesterase, which is the enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine. And by interfering with that enzyme, it increases levels of acetylcholine in the synapse, which can overcome the anticholinergic effects of uh, anticholinergic agents, including diphenhydramine. And it's, it's really nice because unlike most things in toxicology where you don't have a direct antidote, this is truly antidotal. You have somebody with um, anticholinergic uh, toxicity, you give them a procholinergic agent, and it fixes them. And there's really good data that physostigmine in the appropriate patient works wonders. It's been shown to be more effective than benzos in getting rid of delirium. It's been shown to have much fewer side effects than benzos. It's been shown to reduce hospitalization time and, and treatment time. And the other thing is very often um, when you see a patient who's floridly out of it or delirious from anticholinergic toxicity and they've gotten benzos and maybe they're restrained, um, maybe to the care team they're not in any danger because they're restrained and they've got a sitter, but to everyone around them, they're shifting, they're fumbling, they're pulling IVs, they're at risk for falling. There's always anyone who's restrained is at risk for injury um, if they get mangled or tangled in their restraints. And it's very distressing for the family. And just hospital-associated delirium um, is something that is more than just a behavior to be restrained, especially in the elderly hospital-associated delirium is associated with double-digits mortality. So having an agent like physostigmine that can really rapidly reverse the delirium associated with anticholinergics is, is really wonderful. And, uh, and pretty much, uh, just to go over that, uh, the way that you dose it is you would typically give you know, a test dose of you know, 0.5 to 1 milligram slowly uh, over 5 minutes, and then you would see, and, and very often you'll see within a matter of minutes, a rapid improvement in symptoms. Now, the actual dose can be 2 milligrams to 5 milligrams, 
really what they need. Contraindications to FISO. So you want to watch people who have asthma because when you increase the cholinergic tone, um, you can lead to bronchospasm. Uh, you want to watch people with conductive heart blocks because it's, once again, you're increasing vagal or, or um, cholinergic tone, and that's going to exacerbate heart blocks. And um, and then the one big no-no that I think scares everyone is uh, TCAs. And uh, there have been a number of case reports coming out where they used to give FISO really to everyone. Very often, people who take a TCA come in tachycardic, altered, looking very anticholinergic, and there were case reports uh, where when these people got FISO, they very quickly uh, developed asystole, which is one way to sort of um, stop the anticholinergic toxidrome is to stop the heart. But asystole is not something we ever want in the emergency department. So now, currently, when someone has overdosed on a TCA, FISO is directly contraindicated. And given the low level of prescription of TCAs, you would think that people would be pretty comfortable giving it. But I feel like everyone has sort of looked on FISO as the drug of death. But if they have an EKG that's been done right beforehand and it's got a narrow QRS and they're not showing signs of sodium channel blockade, they're not showing signs of TCA toxicity, and you know exactly what they took, then you should give it. I've had really long conversations with people um, going over the risks and benefits and holding hands and recommending it you know, from the poison center or over the phone and only to find out that it was never given. And because of that concern over um, cardiac arrhythmias and, and actually seizures in TCAs also. Um, but by and large, there's, there's good data that it's a safe drug, that it's a good drug in the right population, and that it really can help patients fast. Uh, that's the background. The interesting Toxperl I had, which is sort of a second-level Toxperl, was recently we had a patient that needed um, treatment that had been getting benzodiazepines and fluids sort of inappropriately for their anticholinergic delirium for uh, hours and hours. And the anticholinergic delirium can really go on for a long time and can sort of wax and wane a little bit. And finally, we got the team to give physostigmine. And I uh, followed up and found out that the patient immediately, their, their mental status improved. And typically, mental status delirium is going to be your indication for giving it. You're generally not giving it to somebody who's just a little tachycardic and red. And they gave it. They had atropine nearby in case the patient developed bradycardia or um, cholinergic effects. Um, and uh, the patient improved dramatically. And then after about an hour, the Pfizer wore off. And sometimes th that happens. Um, and typically, you just redose if that's the case. But the FISO wore off, and then they said, well, we don't have any more FISO, which surprised me. Um, hospitals should have uh, good stocks of FISO on board, but it seems like there's some mysterious, I don't know if it's a Russian drug cartel somewhere that is stockpiling agents, and I don't know about you, but I feel like every week I get a new email about a drug I can't give. So if you're out there listening and you have stockpiles, please release the drug. Um, I like Zofran. I like... Um, a lot of different agents. So they couldn't give it. And so there was this discussion of whether or not we should give something else, like neostigmine. Now, neostigmine sounds a lot like physostigmine, and it works similarly. It's acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. You very often give it to people with uh, myasthenia gravis. The difference is uh, physostigmine crosses the blood-brain barrier because it is an uncharged uh, tertiary amine versus neostigmine, which is a quaternary amine. And I know those of you who are not into chemistry, your eyes are rolling, but essentially because it's charged, it doesn't cross that, doesn't cross that um, lipid barrier so well, and so it shouldn't affect the brain. And that's typically why you shouldn't see a lot of symptoms 
centrally from people who get nemostigmine. However, there is a case report out there of a young child developing anticholinergic toxicity from a plant ingestion, and similar situation, they, they knew that they were delirious and they were sort of deteriorating from their delirium, and um, they didn't have physostigmine, so they said, what the hey, let's try neostigmine, and they gave it, and the child improved. And the theory behind this is that in a stressed state where the blood-brain barrier is broken down, which you can see in emotional stresses or metabolic stresses or infectious stress, this classically in meningitis where sometimes things that shouldn't cross into the brain do, some antibiotics that shouldn't end up crossing well. Um, well, in a stressed state, uh, such as delirium, where the blood-brain barrier is broken down, maybe the neostigmine can get through. And so we recommended trying neostigmine in this case, and it worked It worked really well, actually. Now, by no means should you give neostigmine. Physostigmine is the first-line agent of choice for anticholinergic delirium, barring those contraindications we talked about. So other relative contraindications to physostigmine would be anyone with asthma we talked about, peripheral vascular disease, if they've got intestinal or, or bladder blockages, because that's going to aggravate that. And then, like we talked about, anyone with the cardiac conduction delay. But if you're up against a wall, just like anything else in toxicology, treat the patient, not sort of the textbook. And um, if your patient might benefit from it, and maybe they're stressed and have increased permeability of their blood-brain barrier, try it out and, and see if it helps. Uh, patients are the ultimate experiments. And so that's my my tox pearl. Please, please use FISO when appropriately for anticholinergic patients only by using it. And I very find, often find that it's the motivated uh, residents who maybe are a little more willing to review the literature and review the contraindications and see that the patient doesn't really have those and give it um, are more likely to do it. And only then will we see maybe an increased use of this agent with, uh, with appropriate patients, especially as the number of people on TCAs uh, continues to decrease. So help your patients, give them the FISO. And if you don't have the FISO, well, if you do give them Neo, you can probably publish it because it's so rare. But, and that's my Toxperl. Hope you enjoyed that uh, talks pearl. Next up, we are going to have um, uh, a conversation. I'm talking to Chuck McKay from the Connecticut Poison Control Center. This is regarding a talk that Dr. McKay gave at our regional uh, toxicology meeting, which is pretty much um, the New England states getting together to talk about uh, different issues in toxicology, which we do every few months. And I thought that his uh, talk, uh, which covered uh, the controversy surrounding apple juice and arsenic and lead, was so good that we should uh, sort of invite him on the show. So this is a telephone conversation that we recorded, and we are putting out for your perusal. Hopefully you uh, get something interesting from it. With me today is uh, Dr. Chuck McKay uh, from the Connecticut Poison Control Center. Hi. Yeah, this is uh, this is Chuck McKay. I'm also the uh, ACMT uh, contact point with our uh, ATSDR network, uh, which is kind of looking at... Uh, issues of environmental uh, toxicology and, and health concerns in the community. I wanted to have Dr. McKay on the show uh, mainly because he had given a recent talk at one of our regional uh, meetings about uh, kind of arsenic in apple juice, and uh, I think it's something that's been in the news media lately and, uh, and hadn't really been addressed from really, I think, a scientific or medical basis. So I thought that Dr. McKay did a really good job of kind of covering that and discussing it. 
I was just wondering, okay, how this how did this come to your attention, sort of initially, or why why did you even want to really talk about it? Well, Matt, it, yeah, thanks for the introduction. It, you know, it this is one of these issues that I think is uh, certainly flies below the the kind of uh, radar of most of practicing uh, physicians and medical toxicologists for routine daily interactions with you know patients who acutely have been poisoned by something or uh, you know where there's an issue about uh, you know large scale exposures say carbon monoxide or other kind of things but it it's something that's very much out there in the public's mind that there are all kinds of chemicals and entities that are out there poisoning us all the time and that's been really heightened a lot by some of the media attention driven mostly by some of the advocacy groups um, you know groups that really focus on environmental pollution and other kind of things as a cause of uh, all ills in the world and when Dr. Oz uh, made this uh, kind of statement about apple juice being contaminated and the focus was on arsenic and then uh, you know, consumer reports and consumer human come out a little bit later with uh, arsenic and, and lead in, in apple and, and grape juice that they had taken a look at samples. It just it really kind of uh, struck me as, as something we needed to respond to because the statements were, were wildly erroneous and completely misplaced in terms of their foundation. So it was it brings up an issue that I think we need to pay attention to, which is that uh, this environmental banter about toxicity um, is is going off and and kind of builds up a, a kind of a reservoir in people's mind that is like, oh, you know, another thing that's killing us. A toxic reservoir. Yeah. I mean, essentially, there's already, I guess what you're trying to point out is that there's already sort of a an element of fear in the safety of our food supply in our environment. There's already a sense from a lot of people that the world is, is poisoning us. You know, you see that everywhere. Start shopping at Whole Foods and, and trying to avoid having anything in, in right. anywhere. And then there's um, there's uh, shows like Dr. Oz. Now, Dr. Oz is it's a medical show on one of the major networks where I guess they try to talk about medical issues. And, and he's a doctor, so he has some legitimacy, it seems like. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, and that seems to be a you know a photogenic kind of guy. So um, he's uh, you know draws a large uh, audience. But when uh, you know when when that kind of gains a, a lot of play, and if I mean, if you look at the website, there's a heavy uh, presence of uh, advertisers of uh, supplements and things that are. You know, you you can't be healthy unless you're supplemented. Kind of messages. So, and I think that infuses the the show as well, um, and gets back to that whole idea. It's one of these things where uh, I think there's some really key points we can take away, uh, both as as uh, physicians and as health educators and risk communicators to the public, where if you start seeing these kind of things. Uh, show up again and again, it, it allows you to at least have a, uh, a higher degree of, uh, of circumspection about just accepting uh, somebody's statement because they tend to say it on TV or, or you know, this right. Stuff and that's an excellent point. And so, essentially, just to, just for people that aren't familiar with this, what happened? What 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 did they say? What was the statement? Sure. So maybe we could combine, you know, both of the reports because they're they they are touted by uh, their proponents as as uh, 
you know, su- supporting and supplementing uh, uh, each other. But, you know, so back in, uh, you know, it was back in uh, September or so, um, uh, Dr. Oz uh, tested uh, about, uh, um, you know, three dozen or so uh, uh, juice uh, spe- uh, uh, samples and found about a third of them testing um, elevated for, for arsenic. Uh, we'll talk about what elevated means in, in a minute. And then the consumer uh, reports uh, pulled about 88 samples, uh, including several lots when they were able to get them of, of the same uh, brands, but, but multiple brands, and tested uh, apple and grape juice for arsenic and lead. And they found about 10% of their juices had arsenic levels that were above what they uh, used as a comparative uh, regulatory value, and about 25% uh, were above that, uh, a value uh, for lead. And, and when it's stated that way in conjunction with we know that lead is a toxin and we know arsenic is a poison, then it's like, oh, this is a bad thing. And so people could be uh, alarmed. And indeed, there's been a lot of response where people are saying, you know, should I stop, uh, you know, giving juices to my kids and, and all kinds of other questions that come up that are based on, it uh, turns out, false comparisons. And probably the best way to look at that, you know, is, is let's look at the lead thing, which was it really hasn't gotten a whole lot of the press and all. But, but you know, to say that a quarter of the juices have high levels of lead in order to be able to say that, that was all out of the consumer consumer uh, consumer reports uh, study. They had to choose the comparison value as being uh, bottled water uh, lead uh, uh, standards from the Environmental Protection Agency, and that is uh, five parts per billion or or five micrograms per liter of of water. If they had chosen the uh, tap water standard which is 15 micrograms per liter, then only one of the 88 samples would have been above that, and that would have been one that was measured at 16 micrograms per liter. So practically not above the standard at all. So it would be obvious why they choose the lower standard, because then they could make more of a claim, even though neither of them has a health impact. So that's actually a great point, and that's actually, I think, something that um, um, we don't always get in medicine, but definitely in environmental um, medicine and environmental toxicology, the idea of, first of all, having a threshold, so beyond which, I mean, the, the point of the um, uh, the controls, which are they, I think, are they set by Food and Drug or um, EPA? Right, so water, yeah, so and, and you're kind of crossing agencies here. Wait, I mean, there are some important points that are brought up. Maybe we could kind of like, you know, bookmark those for just kind of like comments later, but the uh you know so how do our food water consumables everything else get regulated and and so EPA is the responsible agency for water um for juices that would be the FDA for milk you know like a dairy product uh, you know that could be FDA and USDA, uh, depending on what the particular product was, you know, whether it has animal components in it or not, and that kind of thing. So, so there is a lot of mishmash, uh, and you know, others like National Oceanographic and Aeronautics Administration, you know, for for fish, has some control, and uh, alcohol and tobacco and firearms has uh, <laughs> very little control. Yes. 
<laughs> so it's a, so it's very much a, a kind of a, a mixed bag of regulatory agencies. But um, but your your point about you know what are our comparisons and what are the standards? So you've crossed a thresh you've crossed a regulatory threshold here if you've gone for a public drinking water supply anyways if you've gone for arsenic above 10 parts per billion and for lead above 15 for for tap water and all. Um, but you have not but those are not health based standards those are precautionary standards that say. You know, this is a safe amount to have that we don't expect anybody to have any health effects from, and it's multiple orders of magnitude away from where you might actually expect to see, um, you know, actual health impact. So it's not like you want to get too close. I guess it, it's kind of like a kind of like a speed limit. You know, if you you should drive you shouldn't drive above 45, but if you drive 60, it doesn't mean that the car will in, car will incinerate. Right. Yeah. Right. You, right. So, it's, uh, what are what are you trying to prevent or limit? And and if it were bad conditions out there, maybe 45 isn't what you ought to be striving to hit either. So, you know. So you and and so this you know it isn't a um, it isn't a, a kind of a, a line in the sand that as soon as you cross it you're causing harm. But there may be some things, and this is often the argument from from those who would say that these are real issues that you there are some situations and therefore some people who might get exposed to different contaminants and whatnot where they can't tolerate as much but the important thing to really remember is that all of our regulatory thresholds already have those precautionary safety factors built into it so if you want to continue the analogy of uh, you know, of the speed limit, you know, it's not like if you go 46 in a 45 mile an hour zone, your car's going to fall apart and you're going to have a car crash. But it's also that things have been actually set up in this hypothetical road, so you could go 450 miles an hour and you'd still be okay. So they do they do orders of magnitude. They reduce things by orders of magnitude. Yeah. So the default, unless there's evidence to suggest a different number. Like, you know, if you actually have evidence that says, um, you know, say humans are two times as uh, sensitive to something as your animal model, then they'd put in a factor of two, or they could choose to put in a factor of two. But usually the regulatory agents will use the default numbers of a tenfold difference. And and so that would go from uh, evidence of harm in, say, some animal experimental model, and then you put a factor of ten of safety factor in to say we're moving now from an animal model where there's actually harm demonstrated to what we would presume if we don't have evidence for it where there would be no effect in an animal so that's one safety factor then you say well let's assume that humans are more sensitive than animals which may or may not be true but let's assume they are and that's put enough because you're not allowed to give lead to people right you don't want to give more of something that you know at some level causes harm, so we'll put in less of less of a you know or more stringent kind of safety factor. And then let's say that for some there are some humans that are more at risk than others, and we know that's certainly true. You know, for example, a, a fetus is is certainly going to be more at risk for certain um, developmental toxins than a full-grown adult or something like that. So let's put in another factor at ten. So if you multiply, because then those are, it's not like those are added up, they're multiplied. So that means 10 times 10 times 10, you're a thousand fold away from where there's actually been harm demonstrated. So that's, that's, a, that's a pretty big safety margin. And, and, and that's where I, I have a hard time seeing how people get excited as you start to infringe on these standards uh, when those standards are really just saying you're beginning to cut in on your safety factors.
So you were saying that, that there's um, essentially safety margins built into these uh, limits, mainly to protect people from themselves um, and the weakest among us from from uh, sort of the, the least possible danger. So you brought up a point that, so they used the standard for, was it bottled water? Right, so the, when, when consumer reports, and, and this is, it kind of brings up another issue is, you know, we always ought to be suspicious of what advocacy groups say because, because they need to get people to donate money. So they'll always, well, imply or embellish, I guess there may be differences between those, but they'll always make the case that makes it most uh, apparent that they need to be supported in their activities for whatever they're doing, and therefore you ought to contribute money to them. So if they had chosen a tap water standard, and most people drink tap water, or I'd hope they would because it's a waste of money not to, um, then they would have had very little to report. So instead they choose a bottled water standard, and that's a third of the tap water standard, you know, five parts per billion instead of 15. So now they can make more reporting noise about the amount of exceedance. You know, a quarter of the samples exceeded it. It would be kind of, you know, not make as much press if you say less than 1% of the samples of juice exceeded the standard for tap water. Let, let alone whether using water as a standard to compare juice to is, is appropriate or not. Uh, you know, that's a good point. And television shows are similar in that they need audience and you want to have motivating, um, pressing right. things. Find up next. Find up what will kill your child next on our, our next segment. I think uh, podcasts are very, very similar. And I'm sure that anyone who doesn't listen to this is in danger. Yeah, that's it. There you go. It's kind of hard for us to say, though, it's not an issue, you know. <laughs> but it but it does bring up a, a bunch of important issues. There are a lot of people who make their livelihood offering remedies and treatments for conditions that people don't have based on their false statement about their toxicity from a variety of different uh, um, environmental exposures. You know, think about where the uh, supplement industry and the detoxifying regimens and uh, a fair number of the uh, alternative medicine practices would be if they didn't have a big environmental bugaboo to point out and, and say, you need to be protected. No, I think that's true. I mean, I think even, even working uh, in a, an emergency department, I feel I largely treat uh, illnesses that aren't there sometimes. Um, so, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, so, so you were saying is so the advocacy groups were testing and then they found... Um, they did find some uh, juices, and they picked out apple juice, I guess, um, picked out apple juice that exceeded the bottled water limit, and that was in response to a segment on the television show. Right. So, yeah, so that was what was uh, you know, what got most of the press and, and ended up with uh, you said the debate actually that involved the FDA, and it's actually ongoing discussions with the FDA. Uh, I think it's going to be interesting to see how... Uh, precautionary or protective, overly protective, you might say, they uh, are going to end up being with with all of this. But yeah, there was a you know a, a, a real back and forth, uh, in, including with with other uh, uh, medical uh, experts and, and researchers even in the area, uh, which really confused the whole issue of you know what does this mean to have uh, a given amount of arsenic in juice 
and what does it mean to compare it to water? Uh, there was an issue that was raised, uh, I've seen almost more after the fact, that said, well, you know, a lot of our um, apple concentrate or apple juice concentrate, whatever else, uh, comes from other countries. And so we need to be more proactive or protective in terms of looking at uh, our food sources that are, you know, from other parts of the world. And that's that's actually probably a, a very reasonable um, uh, uh, statement or, or issue to to bring up for discussion, but it was not the uh, it was not the primary one that came out in in the media. That's for sure. Well, yeah, and I think that happens with a lot of a lot of both in tox and infectious disease. A lot of foodborne outbreaks, they always try to find the source, and um, you know people like to talk about tainted blueberries from Mexico or something like that. And a lot of our food comes from other overseas, and I think. Um, in a time of insecurity, you know, there's people are worried about um, our food supply. And I, actually, just going to the website, um, the uh, Dr. Oz website, when you look at the show comments, there's a number of people talking about how horrible it is that we get our some of our apples from China, Chinese apples. Um, but uh, yeah, and so and so why? Yeah, so yeah. initially, the FDA though, when they um, when they heard about the story or they heard about the levels. They sort of tried to uh, make a distinction in the, in the types of arsenic, didn't they? Right. So the initial an initial criticism, I and mean, the criticisms can be at multiple levels. And, and maybe let's just list them out, and, and then take that one as a specific. So the first one would be, you know, what are you comparing it to? And nobody is suggesting that kids should drink as much juice as we encourage them to drink water during the course of a day of activity. Um, so that would be one thing, so it's an appropriate standard. The second is that the standards are not set as a health-based kind of thresholds. They're set as very protective regulatory standards. Um, exceeding them may get into some area of like public health risk, but it's not an individual health risk almost ever. Um, and then there is the issue of uh, what is the type of arsenic, because like all heavy metals, the form that it's in makes a makes a very large difference in terms of both its accessibility to our body and its toxicity and how it's handled by our normal metabolic machinery and all. So the FDA had said, well, you know, you've reported out total arsenic. You haven't reported out arsenic in its organic form, you know, bound to carbon atoms and all, or in its uh, inorganic form, which would be the one we would have most concern about, which would just be the uh, arsenic salts and things like that. So uh, the uh, Consumer Reports did that next step where they actually uh, separated out uh, speciated is the word for it, the inorganic from the organic or from total arsenic. And what they found is, uh, from their reports, uh, again, now about 10% of their uh, measurements were elevated, again, compared to the water standard, although you, you should be mentioned that almost all those elevated ones were very close to the water standard of 10. They were really like 12 and 13. One of them was almost... 25 uh, parts per billion, so that's the, and that's the only one that was that high. So one out of their 88, again, that doesn't that doesn't gain you as many advertisers to say that. But um, but the most of about it'd be hard to uh, run across all 88 samples, but about two thirds or so of the uh, um, uh, arsenic uh, total it was uh, inorganic. Um, Actually, in some of them, it was a little bit closer to 90% or so. So you could say that 
the FDA's concern about uh, the source of the arsenic was not not a, a, you know a, a significant concern at least in these samples. So most of the arsenic was in the inorganic form, but again, it's it's in these small concentrations that are are not uh, uh, health risks. It's it's interesting. There's a large and growing uh, epidemiologic and some animal experimentation data talking about the effects of low-level arsenic, but it's so um, so telling to to read the articles themselves as opposed to the press releases, uh, where they'll talk about you know level you know levels near to our current limit as showing evidence of harm, but then when you read the paper. Uh, it's actually the levels much, much higher than that, say 500 parts per million or so, where people are actually demonstrating harm and the levels below that approaching numbers that we tend to see in this country end up being uh, very minimally statistically significant, if at all present, with a lot of confounders in there for, for a variety of things, you know, heart disease, diabetes, uh, the likelihood of some uh, cancers, lung cancer, bladder cancer, that kind of thing. Those are harms that in areas of the world where people have, you know, a hundred times the amount of arsenic in their water as we do. It's a real health risk for real people. Unfortunately, that's, uh, you know, people are putting a lot of uh, kind of noise about about doing much, much, much lower levels where, you know, 90 99% of our population are experiencing uh, levels that are of no. So just to just to kind of review that. So essentially, yeah. what you're saying is um, there is there is medical literature looking at um, uh, kind of the health effects of these metals. In general, though, when you when you look into it, the literature tends to be. I mean, it's kind of complex. It's it's lengthy. It's it's difficult to read at times. It's a little boring at times. And then it sort of gets processed into snippets or sound bites or press releases. Um, very often, if you're um, kind of a layman reporter or something reading these, really you're going to pick up kind of the buzzwords or the buzz issues. And so it's not that uh, that by and large you need huge amounts of arsenic to get toxicity. It's arsenic leads to organ effects and cancer and other things. And so it can, you kind of start to ignore right. it. And then once that story gets processed by somebody else and processed by somebody else in the echo chamber, very often you have sort of, you know, um, mercury and vaccines and autism, and you get a lot of amplification of um, initially initially plausible medical um, uh, things or research that just kind of gets... Um, fuzzy kind of it becomes very fuzzy and and to the point right. where it's like a game of telephone to the point with what you start with the articles that you start with bear almost no resemblance to the popular press that you end up with right no it, and i think that there are some there are some clues that people can pick up on when so that when you read an article a uh, newspaper article or listen to a tv report or something like that or read a medical article and the start of the whole thing is Let's just pick, you know, lead, a known neurotoxin, or arsenic, a known poison with effects on multiple systems and a carcinogen. And then they fill in, you know, da-da-da-da, has been identified in fill in the blank, wherever or whatever you're looking at. The important thing for people to recognize is they've taken an entity and something that it can cause at a certain degree of exposure and all, and then 
conflated the whole idea of any exposure to it must therefore put people at risk or we ought to pay attention to, and that's not true. So if you start reading things where people don't put in some dose-response relationship very early on in their statement, then you have to really wonder if it has any relevance at all. I think that's um, that's a really good point. So in this particular case, um, uh, they were, and then and you were also mentioning the quantities in terms of the amount of juice consumed versus water. Um, you made a good point at the talk about you know if a if a child is drinking as much is drinking um, you know gallons of juice a day, then just the caloric intake is um, going to be such that maybe they have other health risks going on. Right. Yeah. You know. Right. So there's a bunch of issues in there, right? You I mean so there are some real issues, right? You know. So do we want you know kids of one, two, three years old drinking lots of juices? And that's fine if they want to drink some juice. But is it is that what you want them to do? Especially if the calories that they take in by that mechanism are not matched by their calories expenditure expended rather uh, while they're being active. And and they're right. So if you have an eight ounce juice box. But you're telling somebody, hey, you know, have, uh, you know, like a glass, basically, have three or four glasses of water a day, you know, if, if that were the target. Well, then you're already saying that we could tolerate much, much higher concentrations of arsenic because you're drinking less of it in the juice. I wouldn't add arsenic to my kids' juice just so they could get their daily intake, but there's no health risk from them taking in uh, you know, an amount that would be more than what would be present in. And I think water. I think that's a good, I think that's a good point. I think the general public's response is, why should we allow sort of any arsenic or any lead in any of our food supplies whatsoever if there's right. any risk? Yeah. And and how would you? And you know, and yeah, you know, and that gets to a real important point, which really is probably the crux of the issue from my point of view. Is you could do all kinds of things to remove all kinds of potential elements of concern or compounds of concern from our products. But to do that requires a lot of money and a lot of effort by manufacturers, you know, distributors, whatever else. And it comes at the cost of doing something else with that money. And and I think we can take that at two levels. You know, one, you know, arsenic is present in all water sources that come through uh, groundwater or that it, you know, percolated through the rocks because arsenic is present in rocks, you know, heavier concentrations in, in some of the older, uh, you know, granite uh, bearing uh, ores and things like that, but, but it's present, you know, throughout everywhere. So you'd have to do a lot of, you know, reverse osmosis or other kind of water treatment to remove elements other than just hydrogen and oxygen in your water. And if you do that, you can do that, but it means you're wasting three or four gallons of water for every gallon of quote-unquote clean water you get pulled out that way. So then that's a huge waste of resources for, you know, for a limited resource if you look at water that way throughout the world. And here we are in this country doing all that kind of effort or making all those recommendations while we are effectively ignoring parts of the world where they have real health problems from arsenic or lead or other kind of exposures. You know, if you want to take people and, and talk to them about real toxicity, you know, have them take a look at, uh, you know, Nigeria and some of the, you know, um, ore mining practices there that have led to widespread uh, lead contamination of villages or the 
Bangladeshi uh, water issues where 20 million people are being exposed to arsenic at 500 to 1,000 parts per million, billion, you know, 100 times what we're, you know, dickering around with here in this country. You know, the amount of money and effort and time that people expend, it'd be better to be better spent there. Actually, more than more than 100 times. Yeah, some of them are up around, you know, two grams uh, or a gram or two per, um, uh, you know, per liter rather than, you know, these uh, microgram amounts that we're talking about. So it's it's uh you know it's quite uh, I mean I'm sorry milligram amounts rather than the than the microgram amounts so it's uh, it's it's kind of the perspective is really missing you know and I think we see that a lot you know we tend to be overly concerned about things that have no importance while we ignore what's going on in a lot of the world and affecting people's lives every day. I think it's a testament sort of to the way that, uh, I guess, American industry and government and just societal expectations and pressures have led to, by and large, an incredibly safe food and, and drinking supply. It seems like every year we're just looking for something something else to uh, sort of freak out about. Yeah, we're more worried about the wrong things uh, at the cost of our health than we uh, than we really ought to be. But, you know, I'd, I'd encourage people to, you know, take some of the money they might send to some of these advocacy groups and um, and send it off to, uh, you know, a, a World Health Organization or other group who may be actually making uh, some difference to some of these uh, people who have some, some real health issues going on. And so uh, so essentially, and do you know why they picked um, apple juice specifically? Is it is it more common in apple juice than other juices or... Um, a lot of the growing area uh, may be an issue because, you know, apples tend to grow in, uh, you know, say the northern reaches of the country where you tend to have more of the, uh, the granite-bearing ores with the uh, with the arsenic in them. There's also, a, a, you know, the arsenicals have been used as a, as a uh, pesticide uh, for uh, apple orchards. So there's a historic uh, prevalence of uh, arsenic uh, in the soil and that kind of thing. But it doesn't seem that that's as large a source as as in the United States, anyways, as far as uptake uh, compared with the uh, with the water uh, that's nourishing the plants uh, itself. That may still be an issue in other in other countries. And again, that's one of these you know issues of perhaps some importance that kind of got lost in all the media hype here. There, you know, there were uh, animal feeds and pesticides and other kind of uh, of agents that had um, significant significant amounts of arsenic, and I say significant when I should be actually saying an amount, but where there may have been more concern about its eventual contribution to arsenic intake um, in, in the diet. And again, if they're not necessary to get to your end product, then like a lot of the, you know, the green chemistry movement and that kind of thing, where if you can go back and retool some of the stuff and some of the starting points to get something that is less of a, an issue for either environmental or human health effects, then that's probably a reasonable thing to explore. That's really the you know the basis of the of the precautionary principle as it was originally uh, promulgated you know you know by the United Nations several decades ago was to um, that the absence of firm evidence for harm would not be a reason to delay action when there is concern, legitimate concern, <laughs> about uh, environmental impact. 
And then there was a clause that said, you know, with consideration about the economic cost involved in addressing that issue. So it, it has to be a balanced approach, but like in so much of everything that goes on, you know, imbalance is, is more the operating uh, posture, I think. I mean, it's it's good that these questions are raised. They should be raised. They should be investigated. But um, when you sort of immediately jump to the worst possible conclusion and, and start making accusations about the, um, you know, industrial uh, juice uh, governmental complex, uh, you kind of you're you're kind of preying on people's people's fears. And um, and I I think even even if you could, I mean, even if you reduced these levels of arsenic, which, I mean, I think the big scary word that, that people throw around is carcinogen, but even if you reduce that to the point, even if for some reason you do reduce one out of 10,000 cases of, of cancer, you wonder how many people you could have sort of treated with cancer uh, with that money. Yeah, that you bring up that other point, Red, which is the uh, when, it, when it gets to a, a carcinogenesis, the, the idea is you, people will say, well, no, any any element or an exposure to a single molecule of something that could cause cancer might cause cancer in somebody, and therefore we should strive for zero on everything. And on the face of it, that's just ludicrous because you know these things are present in the natural world. You can never avoid exposure to all or any uh, carcinogen so at, at all levels so the idea is that that's following from the EPA's uh, again default presumption is that we will assume that there is a linear you know effect you know, as you get to lower doses of an exposure to a carcinogen from you know going away from our experimental models where we can induce cancer in animals that are prone to cancer anyways because we've inbred them for that purpose for experimental purposes, and now we go down to lower, lower amounts. We'll just assume that the risk is going to be a straight line down to zero. But every entity where that's actually been looked at, there's some threshold effect, whether it's benzene exposure and leukemia, or arsenic exposure and the incidence of skin or liver or lung cancer. There are all these thresholds that exist at some level of exposure above zero, quite a bit above zero. And so, and we also have compensatory mechanisms where our bodies are set up to kind of respond to threats and inflammatory conditions and other kind of things. And it is those compensatory or reparative mechanisms that prevent us all from getting cancer at much higher rates than we do. So there's a, a, a school of thought that says that actual low levels of exposure, you may be kind of stimulating your system to respond better against other threats and you may actually be better off than at uh, somewhat higher levels of exposure or lower levels of exposure. So that you know that's that's that hormesis issue, yeah, yeah, which has been shown for some things, including arsenic. Yeah. That's the frustrating thing with anything. That's with even with radiation exposure. There's that's the general idea. This amount of radiation causes this amount of cancer. If I give a tenth of the dose, then I am causing a tenth of the cancers and and um, it's just really hard to do that. But if you go for that, you're, you're accepting this linear no-threshold model. And, and again, the, the idea with that is that the acceptable risk that, that they're talking about is one of these things really hard to convey to people when you're having a conversation with them is, you know, well, one, there should be no more extra cancer risk from this lifelong exposure than one in a million people developing cancer that they wouldn't have otherwise developed. 
but but that that doesn't mean anything about one out of every four or one out of every five people will get some kind of cancer during their lifetime. So how would you ever know that you caused one extra among a million people? You know, it, it's it's kind of a ridiculous thing. Bill's cancer came from apple juice. There you go. Well, that's, and that's that's what has led to a lot of very very strange statements that people will be making and things like. I saw one report uh, that says, well, because of these things, one in 10 people in the world is dying because of arsenic exposure. And you say, well, wait a minute, that uh, that seems that seems like a, a, a silly number. And and it's and it was only when you follow out ludicrous mathematical modeling that you can get that kind of thing. But people have done that. And uh, so you at your center, have you received any, any calls uh, at the Poison Center about this? We we have had a few calls coming in where people are wondering what to do with their apple juice, that kind of thing, and, and a lot of calls from the media wondering how to interpret it. Uh, and, and there are some practical points, I think, that people can take away from this. And I, and I guess one of the most important ones would be... Like a Brita, like a Brita water filter or something like that? Yeah, well, right. So here, so so you can do water filtration, but that's not going to do anything for for elements. So if you really wanted to get rid of this, you'd have to put in a reverse osmosis system, which, as I mentioned, is somewhat expensive, and it wastes a lot of good water trying to get your pure water for for drinking or or cooking or whatever else. So instead, people ought to just take a look at what their water system is. If they're on a public water system, then they already have had these things checked by their public water utility, and it's been reported out to them every year. If they're... <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> you can take a break if you need some water. Yeah, I need some apple juice here. If they're on a private uh, well, then they it's their responsibility to check their own water. And they ought to have it checked, you know, for lead and arsenic and uranium and radon and, you know, those kind of things. <clears throat> and if they find that the results come back from a reputable environmental lab uh, exceeding the EPA's uh, public drinking water standards, well, they, they shouldn't panic. But if it exceeds it by, you know, an order of magnitude or more, they probably ought to consider doing something to amend that water supply. But that's different than, you know, everybody running out and, and trying to buy expensive filtering systems and all. If you have a private well, then you probably ought to get tests done for some of the, you know, routine uh, metal contaminants that can be present just from, you know, groundwater sources. And then you may want to take action based on the result, results, but you probably won't need to. There are individual wells in you know some of the northeast and and uh, say out in the Rockies and things like that where you you probably do have as much arsenic in your well water as people over in Bangladesh do, um, but that's not very many people. And hopefully you know about that if you're if you're one of those people. If so, actually that can be our hysteria now, so people will listen. If you're listening right now. If you drink well water, check check it. Um, but um, oh, yeah. that's right. Don't but, panic. But don't panic. Just get it checked, and then and then call somebody reputable to figure out what to do about it. And you might even make use of your health department or your uh, your local uh, CDC representatives and the uh, ATSDR Agency for Toxic Substance and Disease Registry. Wow. So you're saying that children should start drinking soda instead? 
Yeah, right. So then we bring those issues up, you know, right? How how much time are people spending taking in, you know, caloric uh, beverages for which they're not doing enough activity? So the next thing is just, you know, eat a varied diet, get exercise, don't smoke. You know, if you want to scare people off smoking, they've got uranium and arsenic in the cigarette smoke they're dragging in. You know, it's only a microgram or two if you're smoking, a, you know, a pack a day, but, but you know, it's uh, it's still some. And we ought to really just take all the media reports that come out with a, with a grain of salt or, or maybe with a, a lot of salt, except that'll cause a hypertension. And I think at some level, we really should encourage our legislators and regulators to uh, to waste our money more judiciously. You know, they do not need to go and put more restrictions on arsenic levels in our uh, uh, juices and things like that. But they may want to streamline the whole process of uh, food safety regulation, and that might be a useful thing, a useful goal. Well, I mentioned it a little before, but just again, there the importance of you know, when we say two things, when we say arsenic or any other element is a poison or is a toxin or is a carcinogen, if that's devoid of information about the dose that somebody is or potentially getting exposed to, then it's a meaningless statement because water is a toxin. If you drink enough of it, you'll dilute out your sodium and cause seizures, you know, but that's only because you've overconsumed the water. Well, that uh, that that goes back to Paracelsius, right? The first toxicologist, it seems like. Right. The dose is the issue, right? And then the other thing is just that the form of the, especially with metals, the form of the compound or the element is really important. So, you know, for organic mercury, we tend to be more concerned. For inorganic arsenic, we tend to be more concerned if you have enough of an exposure to be concerned about in the first place. But uh, whenever people just say the element or just say the compound uh, without some reference to the form that it's in or how accessible it is to be absorbed or utilized by the body or whatever else, then again, that's information that's really devoid of any meaning. Oh, excellent. Well, I want to I wanna thank you for um, taking the time to... Uh to uh, record this segment to be on the show and um and uh, for kind of responding to the hysteria. Yeah. Well, it's my my pleasure. It's really our job I think to try and uh help people not be overly frightened by things that don't need to concern them and and maybe help them direct their attention to to things of of more impact or importance. But uh thanks for giving me this opportunity. this episode of Talks Talk. I want to thank you for listening. Uh, you can head over to our website for more information on some of the topics that we've presented today. Also uh, for links to our Facebook and Twitter profile and information on the Talks Talk shirts. Uh, once again, the website is toxtalk.org or you can find us in the iTunes store by searching for Talks Talk. Talks Talk is a production of the UMass Division of Toxicology of the uh, Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Uh, on our next episode, hope to have a pretty good discussion of uh, Tylenol toxicity or acetaminophen toxicity and uh, treatment. Uh, acetaminophen seems to be one of those things that is the easiest thing in the world to treat and also the easiest thing in the world to mistreat. Also, we'll be discussing some uh, future research areas in acetaminophen poisoning, which might 
be seeing coming down the line in a few years in terms of uh, early diagnosis and who you have to admit and who you can send home. So tune in next week for that episode.